Welcome to the Doc Lounge Podcast, Crazy Cases Series. In this series, we will explore some of the most unusual and interesting cases medicine has ever seen. We will speak with providers of all specialties from all over the nation. We will hear firsthand accounts from symptoms to treatments to cures. So sit back, relax, and let's explore some crazy cases. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys for tuning in to Crazy Cases. I am your host, Summer Gilbert, and my co-host today is Pacific Company's Executive Vice President, Chris Call. Well, thanks for being here with me, Chris. Oh, thank you for having me, Summer. Today on Crazy Cases, we're talking to Dr. Natalie Lambasian Drummond, a.k.a. Dr. Natalie. Dr. Natalie's case involves a one-year-old baby who was experiencing an unnatural and extreme irritability. And after many tests, Dr. Natalie and her team were at a loss and searching for answers. So let's hear firsthand how the case unfolds by Dr. Natalie herself. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Natalie. So let's start from the beginning. How was this patient presented to you? And what were the initial symptoms? What was going on? Um, so this, the reason I chose this case actually is because it highlights a couple of common pitfalls and um, obstacles that pediatricians face on a regular basis. So in this particular case, this was a child who was not known to me. He um, came to my clinic for a one-year well-child exam, and the child was not very cooperative, was very irritable, just like a lot of one-year-olds who are in a an environment that they are not familiar with. And um, I had no medical records. The mom had been lost to medical care because of problems with insurance coverage and employment. So there was really nothing, there was really, I had really nothing to go on. So we were doing his one-year well-child exam, and she, she had made a comment about how lately he had been particularly irritable. And he was cutting his one-year molars, so, you know, we talk about all the different things that could make a child irritable, and, um, you know, just kind of went through everything. Everything everything checked out. He was obviously a very difficult exam because he wasn't very cooperative, but, you know, to the best of my ability to assess him and what I knew and what I could get from mom, other than this irritability complaint, there were really no other issues. So that's kind of where it started, and then about two days later... I got another phone call from her, and she said, you know, he's so irritable, he's hardly sleeping, he's driving us crazy, um, and we just can't seem to console him. And I said, okay, well, that's never, that's not normal, It's so we need to figure this out. And we talked about, you know, had you given him the ibuprofen for his teeth, or, you know, had, were there any other symptoms? Was he running a fever? Had, you know, all of these things. Is he pooping? Is he... Everything seemed to be checking out. So we brought him we brought him back in. He actually saw one of my nurse practitioners who could hardly examine him. But because because of this irritability, we wanted to get some blood work and we wanted to just take a take a look at a couple of things, so we sent him to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, the ER doctor called us and told us the same thing that we were experiencing, which was that he couldn't even hardly get into the exam room without the child having you know, having a meltdown. So we said, well, let's just check with, you know, we'll just get some basic lab work. We'll do a CBC, CMP. We'll check a urine, make sure, you know, he was circumcised. We didn't think he had a UTI, but we checked it. Um, we checked um, just a KUB of his abdomen to make sure there wasn't any 
obstruction or anything that was abnormal, and everything came back completely fine. So we were kind of at a loss. We didn't know really what was going on with him. Um, so we sent him home, and we're going to follow up with him a day or two later. He comes back. My, at this point, mom has dark bag, you know, dark circles in her eyes. She's hardly slept. This child is so incredibly irritable. And she said that he was refusing. She's like, when he walks, he seems like when he walks, he seems like he's drunk, like he's all over the place. And, I, and she said, I don't know if it's just because he's really tired because he hasn't done much sleep, but he just seems like he's walking like he's drunk. So then, of course, I was like, okay, so you can't really check optic discs at this point. Um, you know, I'm trying to look for signs of, like, increased intracranial blood pressure. Couldn't really evaluate him <clears throat> for that. So I, I called the emergency room, kind of told them of this new development, and we decided we were going to do a CAT scan of his head just to make sure that he hadn't fallen or, you know, you know that there wasn't a space-occupying lesion that was growing. Mm-hmm. Um, sent him back to the emergency room, got the CAT scan. CAT scan was completely normal. But at that point, the child was getting, you know, was still so incredibly irritable. The ER doctor's like, you know, what do you, what do you want me to do? I can't in good conscience send him home again after what we've, what we've gone through. So we put him in the hospital, um, and I thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, the the healing touch of my pediatric nurses will be able to get him to get a good night's sleep, and we'll have, um, you know, we'll have child life consult, we'll have, um, you know, we'll be able to just get a better assessment, just being able to kind of watch him and observe him in the hospital. So that's what we did, and the nurses called me. I, I normally round very early in the morning. I'm usually at the hospital by about 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And they called me at 4 in the morning. They're like, he has not stopped screaming all night. They're like, we don't know what's going on. Can we give him a little something? Can we give him a little touch of Benadryl? Can we do something just to maybe calm him down? And, you know, I'm asking the nurses on their assessment if they could get anything, any localization of anything. And they're like, no. You know, he he just basically stands in his crib and screams. And he only wants to be held by his mother. So... We didn't really know what we were what we were doing. Uh, we didn't know what was going on. You know, we I consulted pediatric neurology. I pediat you know I got occupational therapy up there. Um, I had ortho stop by. I'm like, is there a possibility? I'm like, I don't want to necessarily irradiate this child from head to toe, but I'm like, you know, see if we can get another set of hands on him, another set of eyes, and everybody kind of all these different specialties. I had surgery come in to take a look and see if they could. They felt like he might have a surgical abdomen that maybe, or like an intussusception or something that, I mean, we were all at a loss. We didn't know what to do. Um, and eventually, grandma comes, and grandmas are always a fabulous source of information. Um, because this, this mom was a first-time mom, and not to, not to marginalize first-time moms, but they don't sometimes have a frame of reference of what a child should, you know, like what should be happening at that moment. Um, so grandma, sometimes having raised kids can be a great source of information and grandma decided to stay with him so that mom could finally go home and take a little break. And she said that when she was, when she was reading, she was trying to calm him down. She was singing to him and he would make, you know, he would actually look at her because he w- he wouldn't look at any of us because he didn't know us, that she noticed that his eyes were making a funny movement from time to time. 
And we were like, well, what do you mean? She's like, his eyes kind of dance around a little bit. And we're like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? So she tried to, like, explain it to us. But I finally said, well, do you think that maybe you could set up your phone behind you so that it's recording or or the iPad, like we have an iPad on the floor. And then I want you to just do what you were doing, like read to him or sing to him like you were doing and see if we can capture what you're seeing. Um, And sure enough, she was able to do that and capture that. And then the minute we saw it, we knew exactly what it was. And it was Opsoclonus myoclonus. And as soon as we saw that, the neurologist, we ordered a CAT scan of his abdomen and sure enough, we found a very small neuroblastoma growing. And he had he was at 0.001% perineoplastic syndrome with neuroblastoma. And, you know, thankfully, we caught it so that it was very, it was very small. They, we were able to transfer him to a pediatric hospital. He had it debulked. They, they got the entire tumor. And he's doing amazingly well. Um, but there are a lot of things about that case that speak to a lot of the things that are frustrating in medicine today. Um, one is how, you know, patients, because of everything that's going on with coverage and insurance, how there is that fractionation of care. And so, you know, I, I had no relationship with this child to really know what his baseline was, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, I obviously I'm taking the mom at her word, but, you know, there's that part of you in the back of your mind that's like, well, you know, she's a first-time mom and, you know, maybe he's just really irritable and she's just exhausted and, you know, she just doesn't understand that, oh, well, when kids cut molars and they can be upset and, you know, you you're, you don't really have that relationship. So that was probably the first thing. Um, you know, the second thing was that even though she had at one point mentioned to the emergency room that he was unsteady on his feet – um, there was also that part of us that was like, well, you know, not all one-year-olds are walking with proficiency. So is that truly a symptom or not? Um, we still went ahead and did a CAT scan, which, you know, again, we're trying to be stewards of how much radiation we expose our kids to, and that didn't really turn out to be anything. And, um, you know, and then really needing to push to admit this child to observe him, which a lot of times insurance companies are not super thrilled with us when we say that we don't really know what we're dealing with, but we need to admit him so that we can observe him because that's not, you know, that's not kind of how, when I, when I started doing this 20, 22 years ago, you know, doing 23 hour observations in order to kind of get an idea, get a handle on a diagnosis wasn't all that unusual. Now there's, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of, of opportunity to do that. In fact, you know, you're you're admitting your child in the same hour that you're admitting. You're already planning, dis- doing discharge planning, to try and get them out of the hospital. So it was. It really took that grandma to see that very subtle neurological symptom that none of us could see, because he was scared to death. He refused to be examined. He wouldn't make eye contact. So we had all these very intelligent, fabulous pediatric providers and support staff and nurses that all could could not figure this out. But all it took was that one little finding that grandma almost didn't mention to us because she just figured it was, at first she didn't really think it was anything important. But I, 
I tell them, like, tell us everything, everything that you see, no matter what you think. If you don't even think if it's, it's important, let us know. So that's why that case was, was such a win, because we were able to finally figure it out and get that tumor out before it had grown. Um, and because of that, he's doing really, really well. I was going to say, Dr. Natalie, what would have happened if Grandma wouldn't have given you that input? Walk us through what might have happened. Well, that was the thing. I mean, we had um, every subspecialist like that I could think of had come and consulted the case. Um, you know, I even like I talked with neurology, and they're like, you know, irritability is such a kind of nondescript complaint. Um, what would have ended up happening is everybody was just, you know, writing their consult note and signing off and saying, there's really nothing here. I don't see anything here. And there was pressure to get him home. You know, the discharge planner's like, why are we keeping him here? What are we doing? Um, so if mom, if grandma had not mentioned that and we had not seen that, that clinical sign, there would have been a delay in the diagnosis. He would have been sent home. Um, his irritability would have continued. It probably would have gotten worse. He probably then would have gone on to develop more signs and symptoms because he did have a um, catecholamine-secreting tumor. So um, you would have seen elevations, heart rate, blood pressure, diarrhea, weight loss, all of that. But when you look at the vitals, because all whenever you were taking those vitals, that child was screaming his head off. So if he's coming up tachycardic, there was no way to determine, oh, well, was this because he's got an elevated level of you know, catecholamine circulating? Like, it didn't even enter our mind at the moment. Yeah. You know, so if if we had not, if Grandma had not made that comment, if we had not seen it, and, and I had not gotten that little snippet of video, which I then emailed directly to his pediatric, the pediatric neurologist who had just signed off on the case. Mm-hmm. When, he, when he was just, he saw that, he was like, oh, my God, I know exactly what this is. And that's when he he called me and my heart sank. But all's well that ends well. And, you know, I'm I'm so grateful that that mom really advocated for her child. She could tell you, I didn't know what was wrong with him, but I knew something was wrong with him. And the challenge when you don't have a relationship with a mom or or a child is, you know, is to believe them, you know, but you're always having to kind of look at what they're telling you through through the context of their reality. Yeah. And your your network is so important. You know, it seemed like you had a really good neurologist on your team. And, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, everybody was scratching their head going, we do not know what's going on with him. He's the most irritable child we've ever met. But, you know, you try and walk into a room of a child who doesn't know you. and, And if their disposition is already that of kind of anxious, they see somebody new and all you hear is that escalation and screaming. Uh, is this something that is rare, and does it mainly happen to children? So, no, um, the opticlonus, myoclonus, when it comes to, to like, a neuroblastoma, when I looked it up before, it was a 0.001% presentation for neuroblastoma, if I'm remembering correctly, because I obviously had to go back and, and take a look at it. Uh, it says, uh, symptomatic perineoplastic syndromes are quite rare and estimated to occur in less than 0.01% of all cancers. Wow. Um, and I think in neuroblastoma, the, it was even less frequent than that. And um, eventually, like, eventually, you know, typically neuroblastoma is found when you feel a abdominal mass. 
you know, you're doing that, that belly exam and you're like, oh, this is not supposed to be here. But he, he did not lend himself to be examined. I mean, we couldn't get in there. And his tumor actually was too small. I don't think that even if he was a cooperative child, we would have really been able to appreciate it at that point. Wow. Interesting. So that's kind of one of those cases that you might not ever see again in your lifetime as a physician. Nope. So. Nope. In fact, the neurologist I worked with, he the last time he had seen it, and he's been in practice for 18 years, the last time he had seen it was when he was in residency. Oh, wow. Yeah, so his heart just kind of sank, and he was like, oh, gosh, I know what this is, and he had had a case when he was a resident. But thank yeah. goodness he did, and he recognized mm-hmm. it immediately because it was literally less than two seconds of eye movement. Yeah. Um, but it was so characteristic in its in its movements because it it was not in just one plane. The eye moves. I mean, it's literally like crazy eyes. Like it moves in multiple planes, and it was just almost like a, like, a little eyeball seizure. And and you know what I think about too is if that neurologist didn't have that in his residency, he probably would have had to kind of hit the books again with something like that, you know, because I mean, there's so many different medical conditions and cancers and, um, y- you know, that, that child, um, had a little guardian angel that, that, you know, the neurologist he had, you know, has, has actually seen something like that, which is, you know, which is such a rare condition. Yep, absolutely. And we were very lucky and he was very lucky and you're right that there was a little guardian angel that was t- taking care of him. And he's yeah. doing amazingly well today. Thank goodness. Is it something that comes back, can come back again? Um, they, in this particular case, they were able to excise the tumor and they had clean margins. So there's no, there's no risk of reoccurrence in his case when I spoke with his oncologist. Mm-hmm. But in cases where they're doing a debulking and have to do chemotherapy, there's always that risk that it could come back. I couldn't speak to the recurrence rates in those cases. Yeah. What was causing the irritability? Was he in pain? So what happens in the, in his case, so he, his um, neuroblastoma was secreting catecholamine, so it was like adrenaline. Oh. And so it was like he, he was getting natural adrenaline pumping through his, his system. So he was just irritable and screaming all the time. And it, it's described in the literature as this intense irritability. We assume it's from the catecholamines that are circulating in their, you know, in their bloodstream, but it's it's kind of like, keeping him on a constant stream of adrenaline. Yeah. Wow. And one of the, my favorite things about this podcast too is because our main audience is physicians and residents and fellows. And who knows if we're going to have a pediatrician listening to this who might have a patient with some of these symptoms and uh, you might get an email, <laughs> you know, asking some questions. Yeah, they tell you, you know, whenever you're evaluating a child, especially before a child is verbal, one of the big red flags is if you have a child who's not consolable by their primary caregiver. You know, so when, when a lot of times when physicians or pre- pediatricians are presenting to other pediatricians, they're like, you know, the child was irritable but consolable, which is a reassuring part of the history. But when you have a child who was not consolable, you know, that's, that's, you know, that usually speaks to uncontrolled pain or something else, but we couldn't figure out any source of pain. There was no redness, no tenderness, no swelling, no fever, no increase in white count. There was nothing. Yeah. It was just this big mystery. Yeah, that's got to be so frustrating as a physician, um, not being able to figure out what's going on. Well, thank you for sharing. Yes, and this is why we, we listen to these podcasts when we drive in our car. 
So mm-hmm. keep making them. We will. All right. Well, have fun in sunny California and let me know if there's anything you need from me. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.